Hey friends, I'm Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all. Let's learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. Hey friends, it's Em, and it is officially the month where we are getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving. Actually, at the airing of this episode, we are only one week away from Thanksgiving Day. With that said, I don't know about you, but I know that I so hope that after listening to this episode in the week leading up to Thanksgiving, it will give us a much-needed time to think about thankfulness, gratitude, and all of our blessings, all the things really, to adequately prepare our hearts to celebrate. So today we're going to be taking a moment to talk about gratitude and what we're grateful for. That's so good. Truthfully, though, this is about so much more than just taking one day or even one month to list some things for which we are thankful. As believers, there is so much more to gratitude as an important spiritual practice in our lives. As we are going to see over and over again in this episode, the Thanksgiving holiday we celebrate is truly biblical. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 for us to rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. Everything. Yet, my O.B. tears, there is so much value in having an attitude of gratitude in our lives, no matter our circumstances, in everything. Oof. Throughout the Bible, gratefulness is seen as a permanent characteristic of the people of God, not a temporary feeling. The Apostle Paul said that those who follow Christ are to be overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 2, verse 7. But did he mean all the time, even in suffering, hardship, and loss? Yes, in those times too. How do we reconcile this? How do we be people who feel grateful even when our circumstances don't seem to warrant it? Harvard Health Publishing released an article titled, Giving Thanks Can Make You Happier. In it, they shared the following from a research study on gratitude. Two psychologists, Dr. Robert A. Amaes of the University of California, Davis, and Dr. Michael E. McCullough of the University of Miami, have done much of the research on gratitude. In one study, they asked all participants to write a few sentences each week focusing on particular topics. One group wrote about things they were grateful for that had occurred during the week. A second group wrote about daily irritations or things that had displeased them, and the third wrote about events that had affected them, with no emphasis on them being positive or negative. After 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic and felt better about their lives. Surprisingly, they also exercised more and had fewer visits to physicians than those who focused on sources of aggravation. It seems, and I imagine this won't surprise you, that gratitude begins in what our thoughts dwell on. As people of God, do we actively think about Him and the promises and the blessings the Bible tells us are ours as followers of Jesus? Or, do we spend our time comparing ourselves to others and being the perfect lives we see presented to us through social media feeds and bemoaning our daily grind or challenging relationships? But to be people who overflow with gratitude as God's Word tells us to be, we can't do both. Ouch. So no matter how your life measures up against those around you, or how hard things get from time to time, a heart of gratitude is possible simply because of who Jesus is and who you are in Him. Over the last few years, I've been trying to keep this idea in mind as I go through my days. There is always something to be thankful for. Perhaps you've heard this one too. When we think about it that way, though, we really can find a way to be thankful in everything. May be hard, but always so good, right? Oh my. Can I just be honest right here about where this episode release finds my heart and mind? And just in case you missed last year's Thanksgiving episode, I want to share that this one is coming to you mere days after the one-year anniversary of losing my dad very unexpectedly while he was at work. All this to say that I am processing all of this hard good life we often talk about on OOBT in real time, my friends. And for that, I am oh so very thankful for your patience with me in this episode. With that in mind, let me just begin here. My hope and prayer is that this episode doesn't feel at all scattered, but instead that I am able to pull together some of the many thoughts and scriptures God has been bringing to my mind in this season. So, remember how I mentioned in our studies in OOBT episode 49 on Exodus chapters 16 through 18 that the more I read about the Israelites and their many complaints in the book of Exodus, the more I realized that I am the Israelites. Ouch again. And just in case you missed that episode, or even the grumbling of the Israelites as found even before number 49, 
Here is a recap from a treasure of a book I recently came across titled, The Whole Bible Story, Everything That Happens in the Bible in Plain English. Dr. William H. Marty says, When the Israelites left Egypt, they did not take the direct, shortest route to Canaan. Instead, the Lord led them in a southerly direction, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. While they were camped on the edge of the wilderness near the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea in the Hebrew text, Pharaoh realized that he had made a foolish mistake by freeing his slaves. He ordered 600 of his elite chariot commanders to go after the Israelites. Panic set in when the Israelites saw the Egyptians rapidly approaching. They accused Moses of leading them out to die. It would have been better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses assured them that the Lord would fight for them. The angel of the Lord, who had been leading the people in the cloud, moved between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Moses raised his hand, opening a way through the waters of the sea, and the people walked through on dry ground. After they were all safely on the other side, Moses raised his hand again, and the two walls of water collapsed, destroying Pharaoh's army, who had followed them into the sea. When the Israelites saw how the Lord had destroyed the Egyptians, they trusted in the Lord and Moses and praised the Lord with a song of victory. Miriam, Aaron's sister, danced, played a tambourine, and led the women in song. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. Exodus chapter 15, verse 21. Moses and the people of Israel now faced a different threat, how to survive in an arid desert without food and water. A month after leaving Egypt, they began to run out of supplies, and the water they found was brackish. They complained to Moses and Aaron. Moses responded by reminding them that the Lord had not brought them into the desert to die. He would provide. He gave them quail in the evening and a perishable bread-like substance in the morning, but they could only collect enough for one day. They had never seen anything like the bread, so they called it manna, which means what is it. To avoid violating the restriction for working on the Sabbath, the seventh day, on the sixth day the people could collect enough bread for two days. To remember this gracious provision, the Lord told Moses to reserve a small amount of manna so future generations could see what the Lord gave them in the wilderness. This manna was later placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and the miraculous provision continued for the entire 40 years until Israel entered the Promised Land. The water problem was solved when the people camped at Rephidium, exact location unknown. When they couldn't find a natural supply, they again complained. Moses cried out to the Lord for help because he thought the people were so angry they might stone him. The Lord told him to assemble the elders and stand on a large rock and strike it with his staff. Moses hit the rock, and water poured out of it. He named the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people tested the Lord and argued with Moses. Okay, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Since we are just coming off the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites in the wilderness, after their exodus from Egypt in our studies, I felt this is an ideal time to lean in here a bit, just to have us all consider the true antidote to complaining and grumbling. Yep, you guessed it thankfulness, and gratitude. While we can all know this at a head level, it is much more difficult to live, am I right, my friends? Oh, goodness. Let me also just jump in here and say that as God often does, so not at all coincidentally, this month's Go and Tell Gals Leaders as Learners book club choice is a perfect fit to what we are studying in today's episode. I so love it when God does that. As a side note before we begin with a few excerpts from Faith Yuri Cho's Experiencing Friendship with God, How the Wilderness Draws Us into His Presence book. Please see today's show notes for links to not only this book and the book club, but also for a couple other podcast episodes Faith was recently featured on. Definitely worth a listen, my OOBTers. Okay, so back to this book. In a section titled, Led and Fed by the Presence, it begins. The Israelites left everything they knew to start a journey to the promised land. They'd only recently been unshackled from slavery. Even though their time in Egypt was oppressive, it was also predictable. They disdained the tyranny, but they were also familiar with it. They understood it. And now they were on their way to claim a land they had never seen, while walking on terrain their feet had never touched. Nothing was foreseeable. They couldn't even predict where the next drink of water would come from. To say that there was uncertainty along their travels would be an understatement. However, instead of a battle strategy, a meal plan, or a map, What the Israelites received was the Ten Commandments etched in stone. As you may know, the first four of the commandments describe how we are to love God, wholeheartedly, and without contest with any other. The last six are his guidelines for how we are to love others. These Ten Commandments were how Israel was to remain in alignment with Yahweh. 
Instead of directions on how to survive, the Israelites were given directions on how to abide in God. They didn't receive a step-by-step manual on what to do in the vast and dreadful wilderness, with its natural threats and countless enemies. It was an unlivable terrain that wasn't ideal even for a visit, much less for building a life and raising a family. How easy is it to respond to something like this by leaning on your carnal instincts to take what is yours in order to survive? By giving His people the Ten Commandments, God was communicating that His presence was better insurance than hustling and scheming. The temptation in the wilderness was to succumb to the belief that God wasn't good enough. Was He actually able and kind enough to be their guarantor of the promised land? Obedience proves that we trust in the sufficiency of God. The Israelites needed to believe that the one who was wise enough to outwit Pharaoh, powerful enough to split the sea, and kind enough to ensure they had the plunder on the way out would be just as capable of walking them through this frightful terrain. Did they trust that he was enough to the point that they didn't require idols? Were they able to honor the Sabbath and rely on him to sustain their lives while they rested? Were they able to look to him for their needs rather than still and kill? They wouldn't need to take from their neighbors if their hearts were brimming with contentment in God. When we believe that God is enough, disobedience is no longer necessary. Yahweh desired for the Israelites that they would find satisfaction in His abundance and power. It is also His desire for us today. If God's people had truly believed that He was sufficient, they wouldn't have turned to their own devices to fulfill their desires. They would have had no room for self-reliance, idols, backup plans, or haughty grumblings against one another and against God. Any action or thought that contradicts His precepts is a declaration that His presence is inadequate for promotion, protection, direction, and provision. It is evidence that we don't believe He is capable of helping or kind enough to care. When we don't trust in God's sufficiency, we start doing things apart from His presence and contrary to His ways. Just as Israel struggled with this in the desert, we struggle with this today. The good news is, as it's always been, God is God even when we don't trust Him to be. Despite the Israelites' stubborn lack of confidence in Yahweh, the wilderness journey revealed that He was always worthy of it. He fed them all. He guided every step. He preserved the lives of the young and vulnerable. Even amidst the constant complaints and failures of His people, God proved Himself to be faithful by protecting the next generation and raising them to be strong enough to fight battles and claim their home in the Promised Land. Near the end of the forty-year journey, Moses commemorated God's faithfulness by saying, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 For forty years Israel was led and fed by Yahweh. Although the Israelites persistently tripped over their doubts, the wilderness journey proved that He had always been enough. This is good news for those of us who have failed deeply in the wilderness. You may not have bravely praised Him in the struggle. You may have grumbled through the pain. You may have stayed up worrying about your plans. You may have turned to darker comforts that feel too shameful to bring up to your church leaders, or perhaps even to God. It may have been days or years even since you last felt spiritually alive. Yet here you are, reading these words. Darkness didn't beat you. Take heart, friend of God. None of what you did in the wilderness made Him any less gracious and merciful. You can still trust Him. Moving on to a section called Grumbling in the Wilderness. It reads, When we aren't in close fellowship with His presence, we tend to resort to grumbling through the wilderness seasons of our lives. Just as a teenager mumbles under his breath after a disagreement with his parent, or an employee mutters in resentment after leaving her boss's office, grumbling is possible when distance is created. In these scenarios, the teenager doesn't feel connected to his parent, while the employee has walked away from her boss. Where there is strife, there is grumbling instead of communicating, rebellious murmuring instead of leaning in for understanding. Israel knew that Yahweh existed, as evident in their cries to him during their plight in Egypt. However, calling out to someone for help and acknowledging them like a friend are very different dynamics. Although he was visible in the plagues that shook Egypt and broke their shackles of slavery, the Israelites weren't close to God the way Moses was. Thus, when things got tough, they grumbled. In fact, they had taken only one step out of Egypt when the grumbling began. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, it reads, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And then again in chapter 16, verse 3, 
If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? As weak and ungrateful as Israel seems, this bitter murmuring is relatable. We do it to gain a false sense of power in powerless situations. In their vulnerability, the Israelites sought someone to blame, thus charging God with sadism and Moses with terrible leadership. Grumbling is a coping mechanism that we instinctively use during difficulties, instead of lifting our gaze to the one true helper. The Israelites' grumbling also reveals how easily we question the value of our allegiance to God while in the wilderness. Although the Israelites were walking unanswered prayers, the desert exposed their fair-weather devotion as they began to romanticize their past slavery in Egypt. When life with Jesus is tough, a common temptation is to consider your own way of doing things as a simpler and better alternative. Your soul will say something like, Okay, God, if you're not going to get me out of this, then I'm going to get myself out of it. This is when we begin to ignore the Holy Spirit and lean on our own intuition. When grumbling turns to action, we cultivate a spiritual independence from the presence that leads us to dependence on other people and things. When the faith walk is difficult, you may find yourself wishing for the things that you left behind to follow Jesus, like the toxic relationship, unhinged drinking habit, or apathy to God. People choose the chains of unhealthy attachments and dark comforts during wilderness seasons because they are, at the very least, predictable. Just as the Israelites saw return to Egypt as a solution, we mistake slavery as freedom because it offers a sense of control, even though it also tethers us to our fears and carnal desires. It's easier to rebel than to acknowledge Him, to stew in our discontentment and unbelief than to turn to His presence. How many times have we resorted to complaining, blaming, and lamenting on our own or with people without ever once presenting our problem to Jesus? How many times have we posted about it on social media rather than praying to Him in a secret place? Grumbling merely punishes our souls with a sense of greater distance. But, friend of God, you can make a holy trade today. You can trade the grumbling for friendship. Although it may feel unnatural at the start, you can meditate on the following truths as you combat your grumbling. He is with you. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He knows what he is doing. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Before spending another half hour brooding over pent-up bitterness, worrying over an outcome, or mindlessly scrolling on social media to escape your problems, try reading these two passages and sitting on these truths for a while. Consider their implications for your life. Meditation on God's truth allows the whole of you to be fully present with Jesus. Okay, my OOB tears. Let me read those two truths for us one more time, along with the scripture references, so we'll have them to combat our own grumbling in the future. He is with you. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He knows what he is doing. Isaiah 55, verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Oh gosh, how I hope and pray that the next time we are tempted to complain, we would choose to make a holy trade of grumbling for friendship with God. Amen and amen. Continuing on, here's a random thought from M. You know, me. (laughs) Have you ever considered that God could have jumped straight from the wilderness to that baby Jesus in the manger? Doesn't it seem that God wanted time with him, just as he wants time with us? God with us. Oh, friends, I mean, really, have we ever considered the truth of God with us? Let's rejoin Faith Yuri Chow as she discusses what she ultimately discovers is the purpose of our wilderness seasons and God's presence with us throughout it all. For her, it began in a hospital room. What is the point? This is my desperate search for meaning in the hospital after I gave birth to my second child. Just hours before my husband and I had walked into the labor and delivery wing, fully confident that all would be well. We had gone through the childbirth routine before, so we were already prepared to celebrate with our newborn son in our arms. Labor came a month earlier than expected, but we had no concerns, just excitement. We were joyfully confident that God was with us, having also the prayers of loved ones who waited in anticipation. There were smiles and laughter in the delivery room. Yet when my son arrived, trauma crashed the party. 
The room immediately noticed the concerning shades of purple and blue on his face, so the nurses whisked him away for tests. I was left to recover in silent confusion. My mind scrambled to process what was happening. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to hold my son until 24 hours later, and even then, it wasn't without the tubes, wires, and beeping machines that were required to keep him stable in the intensive care unit. Disappointment clouded my spirit, and I asked, why would God allow this? What was the purpose of this darkness? I was a firm believer that God can heal, and in my several years as a pastor, I had witnessed and experienced God doing the inexplainable countless times. So there I was, in my fragile post-delivery state, begging Jesus to do what I knew would be easy for him. Lord, please heal my son. I thought it was a reasonable ask. Yet not long after this prayer, a nurse walked into the recovery room to deliver more disappointing news. The test results weren't promising, and they needed to increase his oxygen to support his premature lungs. Under the pressure of my dismay, sorrow began mutating into frustration. Where was God? Why was my plea not heard? Did my years of serving the church not merit this one favor? I continued to plead, Lord, please heal my son. What was supposed to be a celebration with friends and family in the hospital turned into days of weeping in a dark room, with my cell phone endlessly buzzing with sad-faced emojis and well-wishes. Each day, doctors and nurses came in to explain why more blood work needed to be done and why taking him home wasn't an option. Their matter-of-fact explanations were void of compassion, just as a room felt like it was void of God. Eventually, my desperate prayer slowed to a resentful silence. I had called, but he refused to answer, or so it felt. Perhaps my screaming silence would be heard instead. At this point in my life, I had been a preacher of the good news for years, but I discovered how a moment that strikes just the right nerve can unveil the fragility of one's trust in God. Grief took away every religious propriety I had and reduced me to an angry mother holding a grudge against God in her hospital bed. Although I was an experienced Bible teacher, my understanding of His presence was robust enough to keep my hope breathing in this hour. Even when friends came by to surround my husband and me with fervent intercession, I merely stared at the foot of the bed as my hot tears flowed in protest. What makes sense in the pews doesn't always seem to add up when you are facing the ugly realities of life. I was ready to forfeit. The sorrow was so deep and the fear was so demanding that I could only conclude that God had abandoned me. It didn't feel like He was there, or even if He was, it wasn't enough for me. What if faith bears no visible results during times of despair? What then is the point of faith? Questions like these demand answers because it is a weary soul who asks them, a soul who aches for what is true and real. Anyone asking these questions is increasingly intolerant of religious fluff and niceties, no longer willing to settle for inspirational words, but rather aching for authentic change. You don't want a catchy sermon quote when you are dealing with tragedy. You need supernatural help when you are wrestling with anxiety. After you have endured repeated letdowns, one after the other, Positive thinking and good strategy feel desperately futile, like holding an umbrella in the face of a tsunami. When you are in this rut in your faith journey, you swiftly swipe away the inspirational social media content on your phone because it doesn't encourage you anymore. You may have attempted to change your attitude, listened to motivational podcasts, and even gone to that conference that promised to take you to a new level, but your life still feels like an endless cycle of the same issues and habits. When your heart is bleeding and your back is bent under a heavy burden, Words are just not enough. You need more. One day turned to three very quickly, and I was told that I wouldn't be able to take my baby boy home from the hospital, that I would have to leave him in the care of nurses and machines while I drove away. My heart could hardly bear it. I needed to storm into the throne room of God. I had a bone to pick with the king. Yet this pinup anger was dressed in a hospital gown and still vulnerably healing, so I did the only thing I could do, opened my journal, and held my pen, although I had no words to write. I had nothing to say, no song to sing. Still, I felt a voice say to me, Give thanks. Even though I'm a pastor, and this was supposed to be my moment to demonstrate great faith in hard times, I'm ashamed to say I scoffed at the idea. Being a good example of Christian faith was basically my career, but I had nothing good to say that night. Give thanks for what? My newborn child was going through a mysterious health crisis and needed a machine to breathe. I couldn't stand the injustice of it all. I felt the voice again. Give thanks. So I reluctantly mustered up the strength to write a list. Thank you for the nurses. Thank you for a clean hospital room. Thank you for lunch. It was sushi, my favorite. 
Eventually, this list became more elaborative as I paused to appreciate the friends and family who were contending for us in prayer. Thank you for the kindness of those who are praying for us right now. Thank you for this time spent with my husband. It has been meaningful, and we've grown much closer. What started as a half-hearted list-making turned into an immersive meditation on all the good that was for me and with me. My list of thanksgiving that I thought was for Jesus was actually his love letter to me. Forty more minutes of writing passed and my heart thawed. It was as if wind began filling the sails of a ship becalmed on glassy water. An unraveling began as I started to recognize the signs of God's steadfast care all over my life. Oh, how he loved me. How kind he had been all this time. I became profoundly aware that right there in that hospital room, I was before the blazing, shining presence of Jesus. I used to think that choosing to be grateful in the midst of hardship was just choosing to be blind to one's problems. In this moment, however, I realized that it is choosing to recognize God's fingerprints on our lives. That night, not only did I know that He was with me, but I also felt it. It was like a firm, warm hug, the kind that makes you feel safe and seen. During my journaling, another nurse walked in to tell me that my son wasn't doing any better. Regardless, I kept scribbling the evidence that proved God was still with me, because my heart was immersed in His love. It was enough. My purpose in that moment was to know Him, not in theory, but in friendship. Jesus is the point. He is the reward. Knowing His presence is the purpose of the wilderness. This revelation was God's gift to me in that dark hospital room. Another gift came a week later when I was able to take my healthy growing boy out of the NICU into his own crib at home. The Wilderness This hospital experience with my son later allowed me to resonate with the pain of those who walk out of churches or change religions and shut the door on Jesus. Truth is, from now until heaven the harsh realities of life will constantly challenge our belief in Him. You will fail, and sometimes other people will fail you. Plans will fall through. Doors will close with no indication of opening again. Circumstances won't budge in your favor and certain people may never change. You may be in a waiting season or perhaps a crushing season. If this remains your reality long enough, then you arrive at the same juncture that I came to while my child was on a breathing machine, disillusioned with a burned-out faith. This is the wilderness of the soul. For the Israelites, the wilderness was an 11-day trip that took 40 years. The Hebrew people abandoned the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt to trust the rule of Yahweh, their God, hoping for a better lot in life. The miracles of God and the leadership of Moses interrupted years of oppression, and the Israelites left all they had ever known to cross the Red Sea to freedom. However, this wasn't a convenient, predictable journey that quickly led them to greener pastures. Instead, they followed Yahweh into the unknown, although at that time, the uncertainty was eclipsed by the bright hope of the promised land ahead, a land flowing with milk and honey. The wilderness is a familiar scene in the Bible, for it was a place where many of God's servants reached the end of themselves and encountered God. Hagar cried there while she helplessly waited to lose her son to thirst. Elijah prayed for death there while fear exhausted him. The Israelites' wilderness journey wasn't a hike along a scenic trail with a sunset that you would capture for Instagram. It wasn't a place of respite with lovely views and adventure. No. For the Hebrews in the Mediterranean Middle East, the wilderness was a horrific wasteland that offered little chance for survival. It was an inhospitable region with bullying heat and desolate terrain. It would be hard to nurture a dream there, and even harder to find a purpose. The wilderness of the soul is no different. When in it, you travel across the wasteland of discouragement. Very few, if any, will fully understand your journey, which is why loneliness becomes an unwelcome friend there. You become familiar with pain rather than progress, confusion rather than vision. Some say pain makes you stronger, but this is a senseless platitude for someone who is sapped of strength while wandering. You might be naturally sure of yourself, but in the wilderness— you are met with destabilizing uncertainty. To make it worse, you aren't sure it will end. After reading about the rest of the Israelites' wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament, you would know that many travelers, including Moses, never made it to the promised land. Consequently, you could consider this journey pointless because it wasn't a victory march toward the blessed end. Instead, it was a drawn-out journey filled with twists and turns and much fear and failure. So what was the wilderness for? What was the point? The wilderness exposed Israel's rebellious pride and disobedience. But if that was the point of it all, then they followed God out of slavery, only to die in shame. Furthermore, if the wilderness was just the means to get to a better place, then it was an inefficient journey, one that must have felt like 40 years of purgatory 
until God finally considered them worthy of the reward. The sojourning would have been a waste for an entire generation who believed the hopelessness of the wilderness more than the promises of God, then died in unbelief before they could set foot on the promises fulfilled. If this were the actual purpose of our difficult seasons, either to be destroyed by our own depravity or to earn our way into greener pastures, then remaining in slavery might have been the better option. Beloved wanderer, what if the ultimate purpose of the wilderness isn't just to be better or to get somewhere? Although hardship can prepare us for the fulfillment of his promises, the only reason the wilderness ultimately makes sense is the same reason Christianity makes sense. Israel didn't leave Egypt just to arrive at a desired destination and wait for eternity stably and happily. And although sanctification is indeed a byproduct of walking through a desert season, the pain of the journey isn't merely the cruel means to that end. Rather, the purpose of the wilderness is to know the presence of God, and an intimate, authentic, and passionate friendship with Him is the reward. Throughout Scripture, the presence of God has so many names and forms. Is He a burning bush like the one that appeared to Moses? Is His presence like the cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness? Is He a gentle whisper like Elijah heard from a cave? Indeed, God is everywhere, in the galaxies above and the waves below. As time and space exist, so does God. But this boundless Creator also desires to be present with His people. The presence of God can be encountered and known by humankind. The God who is holy and infinite chooses to be relationally accessible to His creation. He is entitled to remain aloof from all that is beneath Him, and He could do so because He is fully self-sufficient. However, from Genesis to Revelation, we see a God who is constantly speaking, helping, comforting, defending, and providing. He is God, but He chose to be Emmanuel. God with us. Throughout biblical history, God's solution to every impossible problem was to offer Himself. The cry of Moses at the start of his time as a leader, before taking even one step toward Egypt to emancipate his people, was, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? It was a fearful question of someone desperately aware of his own shortcomings. God didn't respond with affirmation or encouragement. After all, it is never God's agenda to coddle our insecurity. Instead, God has always overshadowed our insecurity with this age-old response, I will be with you. The only worthy answer to all of Moses' needs and wants was Yahweh himself. Even at the end of the wilderness journey, just before the Israelites' conquest of the Promised Land, God said to the newly appointed Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God's presence was the gift and the guarantee. To his people who continually drifted away and rejected his presence, God time and time again reached out and said, I will be with you. The essence of the gospel is that God gave us himself. We can easily miss this. There are several perks to becoming a Christian, which we talk about frequently in the church. You get a spiritual community. You get to experience the freedom of forgiveness. You get hope for the future, a sense of calling. You get inspiration and encouragement from Christian books and music. However, at the end of the day, the point of the gospel and the very heart of Christianity is to personally know Jesus, a gift that we can ignore even on a Sunday. If you believe the gospel, you must also believe that he is with you. The gospel will be powerless without his presence. He was and still is the only real solution to the depravity of humankind. Our perfect connection with his presence was severed in the garden. Every dark corner on this earth is a result of this severance for none of the evil that we see around us is a result of God's design. We invited it in by walking away from our Creator. But God, being God, took it on Himself to mend what we broke and bridge the gap that we created. He removed the separation between Himself and humankind by laying down His life. When we rejected God, He offered Himself anyway. So those who embrace and follow Jesus today receive the gift that He so humbly suffered for us to have, the gift of His presence. The gospel undoes the blunder in the garden. The cross guarantees your proximity to God. Any feeling or thought that tells you otherwise is a lie to distract you from this truth, because he humbled himself to endure an execution that should have been ours. He is yours to keep forever. The gospel allows us to acknowledge him and not beg for him, to experience his presence rather than strive for nearness. The presence of God is God himself, including his character, emotions, and thoughts. The presence used to dwell with his people through the means of a covenant arrangement with priests as intermediaries and amid the shadows of a tabernacle. Later, he became the God who dwelled among his people in a temple. Eventually, 
He came as a man named Jesus. And today those who say yes to Jesus also say yes to an everlasting friendship with the Holy Spirit, who remains with them through thick and thin. There are different levels at which you can know someone. You can know someone by name as a casual acquaintance. You can also know someone as a colleague or a neighbor. However, if you have the privilege of going beyond this, you get to know someone as a friend. This opens the door to a different level of familiarity and intimacy. The closer you get to someone, the more exposed you are to their thoughts, their perspectives, and their desires. It is an honor to know anyone in this manner. It is the greatest honor of our existence to know God in this manner. For the Israelites, the Holy of Holies, located in the innermost part of the tabernacle, was a place where God would be known in this way. The Holy of Holies was where His presence was, and it was behind a veil, not accessible to just anyone. What made God inaccessible to others, He made accessible to a friend. When Moses entered the tabernacle, God spoke. Moses heard the voice of God, and they had regular conversations there. It must have been a closeness like no other. Not only was this friendship valuable to Moses, but it was dear to God as well. In defense of Moses, before his jealous siblings, God said, Of Moses, with him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. The Hebrew phrase for face to face here literally means mouth to mouth. What intimacy! The man who once trembled before a burning bush was now God's closest confidant on earth. You can have this kind of closeness with God too. Thanks to Jesus, the Holy of Holies is no longer behind a curtain. We don't need a high priest to be a mediator because Jesus became the ultimate mediator for us. There is no more veil. There are no more varying levels at which we can know God. We are the tabernacle, and the Holy of Holies is within us. The blood of Jesus did that. Through His life on earth, Christ eliminated the need for curtains and shadows. We no longer need animals, incense, and formalities to access His presence. The one in the burning bush, the one who parted the sea, the one who descended in smoke and lightning on Mount Sinai, the one who sent manna each day. Almighty God, undiminished, is now within you. The gospel doesn't claim that you get increasing increments of him over time. Neither do you get less of him just because you go through a bad season. There isn't a low-grade version of him that you get because you are a lesser-performing Christian. If any of this were true, it would be an insult to the Holy Spirit. You don't need to beg him to come to you. He is already there. There is no more need for penance for earning your way back into his favor. You can never lose that which you couldn't earn in the first place. John chapter 14 verse 17 says, He lives with you and will be in you. To know him, intimately, authentically, and passionately, you must first know that he is with you. Consider where you are right now, exactly where you are as you read these words. Whether you are in your room or in your car, he is right there with you. He just saw you fidget. He can hear you breathe. He can see every worry or gripe that crosses your mind. You must acknowledge this because you can build no friendship with him unless you are first convinced of his nearness. Wow, friends. I just can't seem to get that last part out of my mind, can you? Let me reread a bit of that just to make sure we fully grasp this point Faith is trying to make here. John fourteen seventeen says, He lives with you and will be in you. To know him intimately, authentically, and passionately, you must first know that he is with you. Consider where you are right now, exactly where you are as you read these words. Whether you are in your room or in your car, he is right there with you. He just saw you fidget. He can hear you breathe. He can see every worry or gripe that crosses your mind. You must acknowledge this because you can build no friendship with him unless you are first convinced of his nearness. If I'm being honest with you, my OOB tears, I would have to admit that I do struggle with this at times. As much as I adore the truth that God is with us, It can be hard in our humanness to feel that is true. Maybe that is why these words are so tender and struck a chord with me. Maybe they did with you too. Oh friends, no matter how we feel about God with us, nor the reading and rereading of this section of this book, it is still 100% true that we need to acknowledge God's nearness in order to build a true friendship with Him. We must also remember that God's nearness is not determined by whether or not we feel it. Faith is not a feeling and neither is a reality of God's nearness. It just is. And it is up to us to acknowledge it and lean in. So amazing to actually consider this truth as Faith did in the picture of the normalcy of reading a page of her book with God nearby. What a great reminder. Even as I struggle at times to understand it, I really do love God with us, my friends. So close. Always. So, so good. With all this talk of Emmanuel— and with us less than a month away from the beginning of this year's Advent season, I'm reminded of a section I previously shared with all of you from Louis Giglio's book, 
at the table with Jesus. I so love his reminder that our Emmanuel has been with us from the beginning. Well, how about I just start reading it and let Louis explain for himself? The Jesus is God with us reading begins with Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Without a doubt, Christmas is one of the best seasons of the year. Yes, I know it's hectic. Yes, I know it can be expensive. Yes, I know gathering with family is not always as fun as it should be. And yes, I know that there's usually at least one moment when you're ready to throw your hands in the air and escape to an isolated cabin or a deserted island. Me too. But when you push all that aside and get right down to the core of things, Christmas is about God coming near. It's about God stepping inside. As the prophet Isaiah said so many thousands of years ago, Christmas is about God with us which means Christmas is all about Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. What's important, though, is that the incarnation of Christ was not the first time God stepped in close to be with humanity. No, God has been with us from the beginning. Genesis 3 reminds us that God was in the habit of walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He often joined them in the cool of the day just to hang out, just to be with them and enjoy their company. That's God with us. Speaking with Abraham, God promised, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Yet this moment is often framed around God's covenant with Abraham, a legal agreement. But don't miss this personal element here. The creator of the universe knelt down to Abraham and said, I will be your God. That's God with us. Exodus records this incredible moment. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. When Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into God's house, God's presence so saturated the temple that the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. 1 Kings 8.11 And all throughout the Old Testament, God's promise resounded over and over to humanity. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah 30.22 That's God with us. Throughout history, Every time humanity has tried to push God away through rebellion or sin, He has responded by taking another step closer, another step nearer, another step deeper into the mess of our world. That is exactly how Jesus arrived. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to be with us. He is not just God with us. He is God with you. Whenever you mess up, He moves in a little closer. Whenever you fail, He fills your shame and reaches out to set things right, to fortify your mind. Oh, friends, did you hear that? Christmas is about God coming near. No matter how hard we have tried to push God away, it's continually about God taking another step closer, another step nearer, another step deeper into the mess of our world, stepping inside, coming, about God with us. And He is not just God with us. He is God with you and me. I so love this reminder. Actually, this idea of God hearing our cries and sending a rescuer is one we will take a deeper dive into during this year's Advent episodes, especially as that feels so relevant right now as we are coming off God's rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. I promise more on all that in the weeks to come, my OOB tears. That's so good. Now on to Psalm 136. Why, you may ask? Well, as always, I'm so glad you asked my OOB tears. <laughs> Not only does this psalm remind us over and over again to give thanks, but it is also a recap of sorts about where we have been in setting creation in the book of Genesis. And then in Exodus, God's rescue of the Israelites, and even some glimpses of what is to come as we continue our studies of the Israelite nation as they move toward the promised land. It is also interesting to note, so please be listening for this as I read, that the line, His faithful love endures forever, is repeated 26 times in this psalm. Actually, how about I just read it so you can hear for yourself what I'm talking about here. Psalm 136 from the New Living Translation begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. 
Give thanks to Him who alone does mighty miracles. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who made the heavens so skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who placed the earth among the waters. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who made the heavenly lights. His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule the day. His faithful love endures forever. And the moon and stars to rule the night. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who killed the firstborn of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He brought Israel out of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He acted with a strong hand and a powerful arm. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who parted the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. He led Israel safely through. His faithful love endures forever. But He hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who led His people through the wilderness. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who struck down mighty kings. His faithful love endures forever. He killed powerful kings. His faithful love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, his faithful love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his faithful love endures forever. God gave the land of these kings as an inheritance. His faithful love endures forever. A special possession to his servant Israel. His faithful love endures forever. He remembered us in our weakness. His faithful love endures forever. He saved us from our enemies. His faithful love endures forever. He gives food to every living thing. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful, worshipful reminder what God has done in the past and continues to do in each one of our lives today. Wow. How about we get right to Lifeway's grateful study, week one, day three of Psalm 136, titled, For His Ascend Endures Forever. It begins. The resounding answer to any question you could ask of this psalm, from beginning to end, is this. His faithful love endures forever. In Hebrew, the repeated phrase is made of two words, olam, for to eternity, and hesed. Due to the depth and vastness of hesed, different Bible translations render hesed differently. The CSB says his faithful love endures forever. This King James Version, for his mercy endureth forever. The ESV for his steadfast love endures forever. And the NIV, his love endures forever. In scripture, here are four distinct features of Hesed. Hesed is an act of faith based on an established promise, a fulfillment of a covenant. Hesed responds to an urgent need for those who receive it. Hesed is a saving act toward a life that hangs on another person's mercy. Hesed is a free and extraordinary act of generosity. Hesed is God's life-giving, unchanging, saving love. He does not love us to death. He loves us to life. Rahab and the two spies in Joshua chapter 2 verse 12, for example, promised to show each other Hesed. They made promises to save each other's lives. Our lives are yours even to death, Joshua 2 14. They were strangers to one another. They did not have prior feelings of love for each other. They were doing Hesed on the basis of an established promise. They were fulfilling their vows when they saved each other's lives and responded to an urgent need. Hesed is the foundation for why God creates and the reason for why He saves. Hesed sets Yahweh apart from all other gods. It is at the core of His character. He is a God who keeps His word. He not only desires to save, He is able to save. Infinite love with infinite power. There is no one like Him. Salvation in this psalm and in the entirety of Scripture is not merely to be saved from death. God's people are saved unto God to be in relationship with Him. Yahweh is the destination of our salvation. If we don't want Yahweh, we don't want salvation. Jesus, or Yeshua, means salvation in Hebrew. There is no God like Yahweh. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is set apart from all the other idols because of His goodness. Psalm 136 counts the ways God displays His goodness. In verses 4-9, through notice how Yahweh alone does great works. Yahweh alone created the great wonders. Not by might or by power, but by His understanding. Yahweh is not a human being, but he is a person, and he has a mind. In the ancient world, inanimate objects in nature such as stone, wood, and metal were worshipped. Unlike these false gods, Yahweh created great wonders, the earth, sea, and stars, by speaking words. In verses 10-16, through the psalmist recounts God's deliverance of his people from the shackles of slavery. Why did he do this? 
because of his faithful, steadfast, and forever love. The deliverance of God's people was established on God's promise to Abraham, a fulfillment of a covenant. The need was urgent as Pharaoh was killing the baby boys and God's people cried out in misery. The exodus was extraordinarily generous, accomplished for a people who were ungrateful and often complaining. They even accused God of killing them. Then in verses 17-22, through we see that not only did God deliver His people, but He provided a place for them, a promised land. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abram. Not only would Abram have offspring—he was childless at the time—but his offspring would inherit a land. God fulfilled His promises when He struck down the kings who were occupying the land and gave the land to Israel as a heritage. The psalmist snaps us back to the present in verses 23 through 25. Yahweh remembers us here and now. Presently, we are low and discouraged. Presently, we have enemies from whom we need to be rescued. Presently, we are fleshly creatures who need food. Even here and even now, his steadfast love endures forever. In verse 26, the psalm ends exactly the way it began by giving thanks. This is a literary device called an inclusio. Hesed is an act we are able to do for another human. And it is an act that God can show to us, but we cannot show Hesed to God. God is in need of nothing, and His life is never in danger. But in His kindness, He gives us the dignity to respond to His love by giving thanks. With this thought in mind, the thought that God shows us love over and over again, I'm going to ask us to set aside some time to show our gratitude, to give thanks by creating our own song of thanksgiving to God. Please note that I will of course put the details of this in the show notes. Okay, let's begin our song of thanksgiving by listing five good things that happened that brought us to Yahweh. Next, list five hard things that happened that brought us to Yahweh. I would encourage us to write these down in a journal or a place that we can refer back to often, and then I would also encourage each of us, speak each of these things aloud, repeating the chorus, His faithful love endures forever, after each one. The grateful study continues. As said before, Yahweh is the destination of our salvation. We are not saved merely from danger, but we are saved to be with Him. We are saved to have a relationship with our Creator. We are saved to be in communion with our Savior and friend. He is consistent, unchanging, and worthy of our trust. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. Because of Hesed. It seems this psalm is meant to remind us to be thankful. To say thank you for who you have always been. For how you have loved since the beginning of time. In worship, in prayer, in the smallest moments and the most earth-shattering ones, we always have reason to thank God for what He has done and what we know He will do. Whether or not we feel grateful, whether or not we feel worshipful, there is always reason to worship in gratitude, because His faithful love endures forever. Did you hear that last part? Actually, this thought provides a great transition for where I would like us to head together next. Okay, friends. As we are nearing the end of today's episode, I just want to take a moment before we do to jump on a soapbox I have become increasingly passionate about to once again read from a section I shared in last year's episode, encouraging all of us to be aggressively grateful and to consider how thankfulness in our lives is actually spiritual warfare. Oh, how I know I desperately need to hear these words again, my friends, especially as my family has barely passed the first anniversary since unexpectedly losing my dad. Oof. Yes, a one-year anniversary, but certainly not the kind of anniversary you want in life. And truthfully, and unfortunately, we all have them, don't we? We have the grief and loss that I know so many of you are going through, even now, as well. As we are limping through the waves grief often brings, especially during the holiday season, it seems. So that leaves me wondering if maybe you also need these reminders, my OOB tears. Oh, goodness. Let's start with this excerpt from last year's Thanksgiving episode. As you can hear in my words, I am trying to find a way to fight for thankfulness this Thanksgiving, to be aggressively grateful, to remember that thankfulness is spiritual warfare. Many thoughts are once again flooding my mind as I remember things I previously mentioned in one of the Advent episodes of OOBT last year. I heard Jess Conley share these words about thankfulness that I still refer back to in my journal pages often. She said, Thankfulness is not weak and wimpy. It's not nostalgic and polite. Thankfulness is intentional warfare against the idea that God is not enough for us. Thankfulness is worshipful warfare against the idea that we need more. Thankfulness is a weapon of worship that we've been given to defeat the darkness around us. I get aggressively grateful for what God has done, is doing, and has promised to do in my life, right where I'm at. Wow. Just wow. How can you do the same and fight for thankfulness in your own life, my friend? 
Or maybe you're having no trouble with counting all the things you are thankful for in your life at this very moment. Can I just say aloud that both are okay? There is no sense in trying to hide what is in our hearts because our loving Father in Heaven already knows about it all anyway, right? We seem to live in that tension of always having joy and pain in our lives at the same time, often in varying degrees of more joy or more pain, but all the same, both are present. Right now, I'm finding myself fighting for thankful as I grieve the loss of my dad, but in the same breath, I'm so truly thankful for the example of a life well-lived, one in which he chose to love others in a meaningful way. Oh my, while this is so tender to read those words to you once again, this time a full year after the first reading, at the same time, I'm reminded at just how much thankfulness and gratitude for my dad over the course of this last year has been so valuable in the healing process, once again holding that tension of both blessing and loss together, both and, in varying degrees, always. For that reason, I want to share a bit more perspective from Jess Conley about what this practice of thankfulness and gratitude can and should look like in our lives, in November, on Thanksgiving Day, and truthfully all days throughout all of our years here on earth. She begins in a blog post titled, The Healthiest People I Know Do This Thing. You guys, don't shoot the messenger. But the healthiest people I know do this one thing. First, let's define healthy. When I think of someone emotionally, mentally, and spiritually healthy, I think of someone who can make space for joy and grief, good and bad in their lives and the lives of others. I think of someone who is ready for what the day brings. That's it. They're not stuck in the past, processing what held them back, but they're also not living paralyzed or constantly projected into the future. And I notice this one thing about all of them. They actively practice gratitude. They practice it privately, corporately, out loud, in quiet spaces, for the big things and the small things. They ask other people what they're grateful for. They expect to find thankfulness wherever they go. It doesn't mean they ignore the bad, and it doesn't mean they're optimistic to a fault. But they cultivate gratitude for whatever is happening because it changes them and strengthens them. Fall is known for harvest, and with November we associate thanks. What if the one thing that might help us acknowledge just how fruitful this year has been is a practice of saying thank you to God for it? What if the one thing that is standing between ourselves and a more healthy version of ourselves is gratitude? Continuing on in another blog post titled, No, You Actually Have to Do It, Jess says, I've always thought the phrase is the thought that counts as nice, but still a little untrue. If I pass someone hurt on the side of the road and think someone should help them, they're still in need of help, you know. If I tell my husband I'll take the chicken out of the freezer to defrost and genuinely think about it without doing it, we still don't have anything to eat for dinner. Sometimes the thought isn't enough. It's the execution of a task that changes the world. And that's the deal with gratitude. Thinking you want to be grateful or thankful person doesn't make you one. It typically takes practicing thankfulness or gratitude to experience renewal in our lives. So here's a question for your day. What does your gratitude practice look like? If you don't have a rhythm or even a few rhythms that help you make space for thankfulness, can I suggest some that have really helped me step into a season of seeing God's faithfulness? Each morning, I make a list of at least five things I'm thankful for, but sometimes end up writing more. As a team leader, I open all my meetings with space to thank God and mention what is good for us personally and collectively as a team. We ask our kids to tell us what was good about their day and what was hard about their day. I take a moment before falling asleep to just talk out loud to God and tell Him thanks for the specific things He did that day. I wouldn't suggest these rhythms if they didn't change my life. Maybe you have your own rhythms of gratitude. God is mighty in you. Gratitude is life-changing. Let's keep going. In speaking of Jess Conley's take on thankfulness, I would now also encourage you to be sure to go to the show notes for an episode of the Go and Tell Gals podcast in which she and her team talk about gratitude as worship, along with some additional specific ways they incorporate thankfulness and gratitude into their daily rhythms. In an effort to personalize this practice of gratitude, I would encourage all of us to consider these questions together. More on that in a bit. But before we end our time together today, I want to have us camp for a bit longer on the idea of thankfulness as worshipful warfare, becoming a student of God's faithfulness, being aggressively grateful. When I consider gratitude, this question keeps coming to mind. How can we practically think about being thankful beyond Thanksgiving and on into the upcoming Christmas season, a season that is so often very hurried and busy, especially if that's not where we are at in our lives emotionally, physically, spiritually, or even relationally right now? If we were being honest, we may even be wondering, 
how do I give thanks to God when I don't really even know exactly what it is in my life right now that I have to be thankful for? Now that's real life right there, my friends. If I haven't said it before, and honestly, even if I had, I just want to make this point. I really appreciate that we recognize and celebrate Thanksgiving, thankfulness, and gratitude before we enter the Christmas season. I have personally found this order of events to be helpful for my own heart. Gratitude before gifts might be an oversimplification, but I don't think the posture of a thankful heart as we enter the Christmas season can be overlooked, my friends. During the Advent season, we should remember that our greatest gift came to earth, and we must learn how to give thanks repeatedly and thoroughly because of who God is and what He did for each one of us through sending Christ at Christmas time, often doing so in spite of what we see and experience in our current circumstances. Choosing to be intentionally thankful for God's unfailing love, for His promises fulfilled, for His presence with us in the waiting. During this season, we truthfully have the ultimate reason for thankfulness, that God sent His Son as a baby born in a manger who grew and lived the perfect life we could never live, died the death we deserved to die, and raised from the dead on the third day to offer us a relationship with God that was otherwise impossible for us to have. And all this began with Christmas. Wow. Because of all this, we can thank our way forward in defiance of whatever our life circumstances might look like right now. A defiant joy, a defiant thankfulness that we fight for. So, when life is not working the way I wish it would, it is an invitation to choose to be thankful for what I know to be true about God. His faithfulness, His steadfast love, and the undeserved gift of Jesus in the manger. This doesn't mean that we have to thank Him for our hard circumstances, but we can certainly thank Him through them and be on the lookout for all His blessings in the midst of it all. Thank you, God, for being good and for being with each one of us in the hard. Emmanuel, God with us. Gosh, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like we have now come full circle in this episode about God with us, and my dad even. Oh, my still grieving but also still healing heart. Heartbreak and thankfulness. Joy and pain. Hard and good. Both and. Only God can do this in our lives, am I right, my friend? So with all that in mind, my OOB tears, I would encourage each one of us to press pause right now and take some moments to fight for thankful, to count our blessings this Thanksgiving season, to name them one by one and thank God for all He has done and continues to do in our lives, to allow our gratitude and grief to exist side by side in this season and in the days to come. Let these be the prayers of our hearts as we end our time together. Amen and amen. Oh my. With this idea of fighting for thankfulness in my mind, OOB tears, please also note that I shared a lot of questions and practices in the show notes of last year's thankfulness episode titled, Thankful for God with us, plus my dad. For that reason, I'm going to link that episode in the show notes to give you the opportunity to revisit or maybe even process them for the first time in journaling, prayers, or around the Thanksgiving table with those you love next week. So, so good. We must also remember the importance of having worship and warfare combined in our lives as we try to notice what God is up to and where He's moving. Speaking of worship, Please be sure to go to today's show notes for a playlist featuring songs I have on repeat right now, as they are such good reminders that gratitude, that counting our blessings, that acknowledging God's promises and even where we see Him at work in our lives, all of it, it truly matters. I hope you take time to get aggressively grateful to God through worship, if not through the songs I share in the show notes, then through your own on repeat playlist. Let's slow our hearts and minds down together to not only look for the miracles of the Lord, but to then also thank Him in praise and worship for all He has done and continues to do in each one of our lives. We thank you, Father God. We thank you. Okay, friends, as an important side note, please be sure to adjust your calendars as the next episode of OOBT will actually release in three weeks. Yep, you heard that right. I am choosing to postpone the first episode of our Advent series until Wednesday, December 6th. I made this decision because the official season of Advent for this year begins on Sunday, December 3rd. And I also want to clarify that we will once again be back on the every other Wednesday schedule with our second Advent episode scheduled to release on Wednesday, December 20th, mere days before Christmas. I so love how that worked out. Plus, don't miss another added bonus in today's show notes as I provide links for not one, not two, or three even, but four previously released OOBT Advent episodes. What a great way to fill that extra time between this episode and the next, if I do say so myself. (laughs) With that in mind, I so hope you will also be sure to tune into the next couple episodes in the month of December as we take a closer look at multiple themes and scriptures related to Advent. I am oh so thankful for Christmas, my friends. 
for Emmanuel, for God with us. I can't wait to share more with all of you as Christmas really is my most favorite time of the year. Truthfully, as I have said many times before in this season, Jesus' birth actually points us to the truth that having God with us all year long is Christmas' most incredible gift. Oh my, I so hope you don't miss out on any of the December OOBT episodes. Okay, be sure to follow M. Faring on Instagram to stay up to date about all things related to the podcast. You can also send a friend request to Michelle Faring on Facebook if you would like to keep up with the podcast, plus all the shenanigans of my F7 family. There is absolutely never a dull moment in our home with our handful of fairings. <laughs> and if you've not done so already, please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. And if you are loving the show, please go give this one a five-star review as that really does help others find us and learn more about the Bible along with us. I can't wait to connect with you, my OOB tears. And one last thing. Please don't forget to go to the mfaring.com website to sign up for the recently released PDF of my must-have study resources. I really can't wait to share this one with you. So as we are only one week out from celebrating Thanksgiving with our family and friends, I just must thank you once again for choosing to journey alongside me through the pages of our Bibles and through life. I am deeply grateful for each one of you, truly grateful, aggressively grateful even. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.